James chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 7. But as you're turning there, let me uh, let us know that this passage is more of what James is returning to how the rest of the book has been. He's addressed the unbelievers in 1 through 6, and now he's back to talking to his scattered flock in verse 7, and he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And so what he's speaking to here is the difficulty, the struggle that they were in, uh, being oppressed. And he's saying to hang in there, <coughs> be patient in the midst of a very difficult situation. And the, types, uh, the type of patience that he is describing is a self-restraint that doesn't try to get even, even when a wrong has been done. And this patience is to be the practice of the believer until the coming of the Lord. So file that, hang on to that. That will come up again in just a moment. But before he goes there, he offers an illustration, and he says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. And so what he's doing is he's um, uh, applying an agrarian analogy to these struggling Christians to say, just like the farmer has to be patient, <coughs> we should be patient as well. And, and this is calling upon the illustration of two rains that fall for a good harvest. The first uh, is in October and early November, and then the second ones come later, <coughs> and both are necessary as a part of the process to bring about the uh, grain that they would need to survive throughout the year. And so he's saying... The farmer has to be patient while the process works itself out. Christian believers, you need to be patient while the process works itself out. And that gives us our first principle today, that patience in suffering should be our pattern. Patience in suffering should be our pattern. And this is one of those principles that we have a little bit of an ugh within us because we know this is right. We know that it is commanded, but we also know that it feels impossible. So let me give us a little help with this. Uh, typically, when we hear the command to patience, our natural moralistic default setting is to say, okay, I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to try harder this week to be patient. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps even further this week. And if we're honest, how does that go? Quite poorly. Are we any more patient than we would have been the previous week? We are not. <coughs> so what I might suggest to us is a better pattern is just acknowledging up front a couple of truths that exist in tension. Number one, we're just not very patient people. We just kind of stink at it, okay? And then everything in our culture include, uh, influences that and encourages that kind of Veruca salt, give me what I want, when I want it, I want it now. Veruca salt's from Willy Wonka, by the way, if anybody wasn't tracking with that. The spoiled brat child. <coughs> But then from there, we also know that patience is a part of the fruit of the Spirit. And what's interesting, when Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 5, we, also, we often think about this as the fruits of the Spirit, like they're individual little character qualities that we kind of Velcro onto our spiritual man to go through life. And while these are individual character qualities, that's not really <coughs> how he's talking about what he says there 
uh, in the Greek, it, he, it, it's, it's a singular word. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so what he's talking about there is these character qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all that, they show evidence <coughs> that the Spirit is at work in your life. And so I think the path to patience that James is calling them toward in the midst of their horrible suffering, this great oppression that they were experiencing at the hands of these uh, awful business people, it leads to and through a greater dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So <clears throat> the first truth, we stink at patience. The culture encourages the opposite. The second truth, we have patience as a fruit of the Spirit, and so what we need to do, I would say, is more like what, a, an, what an umpire does in a baseball game. You may notice this at the beginning of the game, <coughs> other parts during the game. He has this little tool. He comes out, and he just dusts off home plate so that what is there can be revealed. And that's part of what we need to see here. We have the patience. <coughs> we need the patience. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and so we need the Spirit to work that out powerfully within us. So the path of bootstrapping, moralism, i got to do it myself. You're not going to lead to any more patience. But the path of, man, I have this. God is at work within me. Holy Spirit, please come and help me work this through me. The path of supernatural power, that's where change really begins to happen. So part of what James is exhorting them to here isn't just to be patient, but it's to trust God. And if we're honest with ourselves here, at the end of the day, isn't that really what impatience is about? That we aren't trusting God for whatever we have in that moment, for whatever he's doing in that moment. And that's part of why I think he's bringing up this illustration about the farmer. Because I'm sure the farmer would like to go out there and he would like to do something with these rains, bring them earlier so you can produce more crops and so on and so forth. But that's not the way it works. You have to trust the process. So let me ask a couple of hard questions for us here. Number one, is patience in suffering your pattern? I'm just going to assume, eh, mixed bag on that answer. But the second one, do we now see that there is a better path than simply trying harder? Do we see that Jesus is at work within us, that Jesus has the patience we need, and he wants to apply that to us <coughs> through the Holy Spirit even today? Now look at verse 8, second part of it. He says, <coughs> establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And this is an interesting word. It means to be strong in the inner man to provide solid support for establishing a person and enabling him to stand unmoved by trouble. So the picture here is almost uh, that of a rock or an oak that is going to be unmoved by a storm. But then he also gives us some ammunition for how to make this happen. Look back at it. It says, for <coughs> the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so what he's doing there is he's actually <coughs> rooting his command in this basis. So that gives us our second principle, and that is <coughs> that the imminent return of Christ should encourage and establish us in our suffering. The imminent return of Christ should encourage and establish us in our suffering. And so the question here, I think, becomes, 
<coughs> How often do we think about the return of Jesus, particularly in our suffering, when times are hard? And my guess is, hmm, we could probably use some improvement there as well. <coughs> because for most of us, we don't think about it hardly at all. But that is really out of step with the way the New Testament is written, because actually 300 verses, one in every 13 verses in the New Testament, make some kind of reference to the return of Christ. <coughs> that is mind-blowing, because <coughs> in our day, we are used to all these creature comforts, we're used to all these things that we have that can help make our lives simpler, but where the first century lived... They were getting kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball because of their difficulty. And in the midst of that, they were looking for something to alleviate the pressure, to alleviate the suffering. And the return of Christ was very close at hand in their mind. And it's interesting, there's three different words that talk about the return of Christ in the New Testament. And the one that is used here, uh, it, it, it is used 15 other times. And it denotes the physical arrival of a ruler. And the significance of that is they were longing for the presence of Christ, their king. And I think part of the challenge for us, particularly in this part of the world and in this part of the city, is that we have so many other things that can distract us from wanting to be in the presence of Jesus. And they're not necessarily even bad things. They're great things. Going to the pool, hanging out, uh, <coughs> doing something with your family. All those things are great. We need to do those things. But when we're at our best, <coughs> we are seeing God use even those things, even the great things in life, to point us that there is something greater that is to come. And so we can see it a little more clearly when we're in our difficulties but we need to be able to see it even when things are going well as well. Because even the greatest joy, the greatest blessing that we can experience in this life is nothing compared to that which is to come. But let's talk about some of these struggles here. Remember, the part that they were playing in God's story at this moment, <coughs> the people that he's particularly addressing in this passage, they were the ones being oppressed by the people that we saw indicted last week. They were at the bottom of the well, so to speak. And all of us have times where we are not in the same situation, but we are in similar situations where we feel the weight of the world. And so when we find ourselves both at the good end of the spectrum or the bad end of the spectrum, we need to look forward to and long for that day when every right will be established, where every wrong will be made right, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And as Tolkien once said, the day where everything sad will come untrue. We need to long for that day, and that needs to motivate us. And so I guess the question that I would ask for us here is how often do we think of the return of Jesus? Does that motivate us? Does that give us strength in the midst of our triumph and also strength particularly in the midst of our suffering? And a good practical step we could take in this direction if we find that we don't think about this very much is to remind ourselves 
of scriptures like we're seeing today. Look back at it there again, how clearly he makes this connection. Establish your hearts for, or we could translate it as because, <clears throat> the coming of the Lord is at hand. That might even be a good scripture to print out or to put on a post-it note somewhere to remind ourselves we're doing what we're doing because Jesus is coming. We can get through this because Jesus is coming. The Lord is with us now, and he's coming back soon. So let's do our part to do what we can <coughs> to leverage the return of Christ to help us in the midst of our suffering. Now look at verse 9. <coughs> because here, James makes an interesting turn, and he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And the language that he uses here to talk about grumble, it means to sigh or to groan. It's a sign of inner, inner distress. <clears throat> and what he seems to be doing here is he's speaking to something that was occurring in their midst. And it seemed like there was some kind of problem. Perhaps it's just all this difficulty that they've had that they're, they're barking at one another. They're, they're chirping at one another. They're sniping at one another. And he's saying, listen, you can't be about that. That's not who we are as Christians. And Calvin gives us a good reminder about this. He said, No bridle is more suited to holding back our headstrong temper than the thought that our imprecation does not go off simply into the air. But close at hand, there is the judgment of God. So we need to be reminded that one day, even for those of us who are in Christ, we will give an account for the deeds done in the body, for the careless words that we've spoken, and we want to minimize that as much as possible, don't we? So I think kind of like with the concept of patience, we need to think through the sin on the outside and the sin on the inside. First of all, where is this grumbling taking place? If you're in a particular season of suffering, what part of the suffering has given you the business to such a degree that you are grumbling and <coughs> perhaps even judging other people? And then second... What is the why behind that what? What is the why? Why are we grumbling? Sometimes we grumble because there is something that really needs to be addressed. Some situation at work, we do need to talk to a supervisor. We do need to take action in some way. But sometimes that's not it at all. If we're honest, it's just pride. We want what we want when we want it, and we are going to grumble if we don't get it. Or it could be <coughs> that we are pursuing comfort to an undue measure. It could be that we're grumbling because we're just not loving our neighbor as we should. There's all kinds of reasons why we grumble. But again, the path is not, I should do better. I got to stop. I'm going to do better this week because that's not going to lead to change. The path is the same as what we saw before, <clears throat> that we go back to Jesus. We acknowledge our grumbling. We repent of it. And we pray for the grace we need and the power we need so that our hearts would change. And as our hearts change, then our behavior begins to change. And there can be even <coughs> some very practical things that we can do uh, on the surface with this as well. For example, one thing that actually helped me uh, during my prolonged and still ongoing post-COVID battle uh, is to keep a gratitude journal. That's something even the, the secularists have figured out is helpful. Uh, to be able to write down, here are ways that I see God at work. Here are ways that I have seen God be faithful. Here are ways that I have seen 
my own sin, my own weakness, my own uh, depravity laid bare during this time. And even in the midst of all of that awfulness, God's grace was still sufficient for me. God's mercy was still greater than all that sin and all that self-reliance. And so in the midst of writing that down, it provides another concrete testament to accompany all that we have in the Bible. Now, are our journals as good as Scripture? Of course not. That goes without saying. But to be able to point back (coughs) and to point at and say, look at how many ways God has shown up and helped, it's a very, very helpful discipline, particularly in times of struggle. And beginning, or what will begin to happen is the grumbling gets melted by the grace. And then the grumbling becomes graceful speech and gratitude, both to God and to others. And speaking of others, this is another way that we can see change in this area, too. It's a great kind of thing uh, that we can confess and work on with one another in thrive groups and community groups and Bible study and so on and so forth, because I guarantee you, just like the struggle with patience, you will find many fellow strugglers in the area of grumbling. Now, that being said, let's look at verse 10 and 11 here, because here we get our second and third examples that James uses to drive his point home. It says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Third principle here. The heroes in the Bible can encourage and inspire us in our suffering. The heroes in the Bible can encourage and inspire us in our suffering. Now, the, the heroes are not simply in there just for encouragement and inspiration. They are also telling their own story of uh, God's faithfulness to them in their midst of their faithfulness and unfaithfulness to Him. But part of the reason we have these stories is to serve as an example. And that's exactly what James is talking about here. Because there's just something about us as humans that when we see other humans in similar, though not same, situations, and we see how they stayed the course and kept the faith and so on and so forth, it does something to us. That's why biographical movies and biography books are so popular. Because even though you might not be in the same situation as, just an example, you're Louis Zamperini, you can relate to aspects of that struggle, and when you see him do what he did, and if you don't know who that is, you're going to need to go Google it, okay? You will be inspired as well. And so the prophets function in a similar way uh, in our day. And it's also interesting (coughs) about how this comes up so many different times, because this group that referred to as a group almost, and by the time that we get to the New Testament, uh, the persecutions of the, of, the, of the prophets were basically proverbial. They're referenced in 11 different passages, Matthew, Luke, Acts, Romans, 1 Thessalonians, and particularly Hebrews 11. Now, I'm aware that the women uh, just finished a wonderful study on Hebrews, and that particular passage in Hebrews 11 is one of my favorites in all the Bible. Because right there in one 
if you think of it like this, to use another agrarian analogy, you got the whole herd corralled in one place almost. And in very shorthand, you see what our brothers have endured to get to the point where they were and now where we are, and it provides such encouragement and inspiration. So James is really helping us here in this passage by giving us clear direction, but he's also helping us in how to help ourselves in the Christian life. And he did that in the first way by showing us, establish your hearts because Jesus is coming back. So he shows us a motive there. And now he's doing it again by saying, listen, read the prophets. They are going to help you stay the course going forward. So I think the, the, the question we need to kind of ask ourselves there is, are we making good use of these stories of the prophets in our own suffering? Is Hebrews 11 even on your radar when you find yourself in a particular difficulty? And then he goes a step further and he even talks about Job here. Now, there's many, many sermons that we could preach about Job. Perhaps we'll do that someday. Uh, it's a very lengthy book, but man, what a great story of, of a guy who had it all, had nothing, and then the Lord restored him. And it's often common in our culture, people talk about the patience of Job, and a little bit, that's somewhat of a misnomer because, to be honest, he wasn't greatest example in the patience category, but what he did have was he had outstanding perseverance. This is a guy who hung in there with God, God had a hold of him, and he stayed the course. And so he is another great example that we can look to, and my encouragement would be, when you find yourself in a dark tunnel of suffering, Job is a friend that you need to have nearby. And if you find yourself in a family or connected with somebody that is going through a period of suffering, Job is a friend that you can introduce them to because it helps us from so many different angles. For example, you, there's some of Job's friends, you do not want to be like them. You do not want to be like his wife who comes along and says, you should just curse God and die. Okay, So there's some examples of what not to do in Job, but how he trusts the Lord and stays faithful even when it's like this and up and down and God has to put him in his place. What a wonderful help that is to us, and we would be wise to make use of it. So I guess the question there becomes, is how acquainted are you with Job and his struggles and his potential help to you? If the answer is not very much, I would encourage you in that direction. And part of what you're going to see in the book of Job is actually how James ends verse 11 here. Look at this. It says, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. So he's talking to his people here. And, and what he could be saying there is you've seen the purpose of, of the Lord uh, in, in your own life. It, it could be he's saying you've seen it in the prophets and what he was up to there. You've seen it in Job's life. But then he also says this, and this is a fascinating way that he ends this. He says how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And what he actually does here with the word compassionate is he, he basically coins a new word. It's another way of saying very, very compassionate or full of tender compassion. And when you couple that with mercy, he's really pointing us in a very interesting direction here. And it's also a very needful direction because when we suffer, 
And again, remember the context that these people would have been in here. Physical violence, abject poverty, ongoing difficulty. But when we suffer, we are most, that is when we are most tempted to forget the compassion and the mercy of God. And I have told this to so many people over the years who have experienced everything from miscarriage to the death of a child, death of a spouse, so on and so forth. Suffering is surprisingly disorienting because you can have the strongest walk with God until that awful, awful thing happens, and there's something about the difficulty of that situation that causes us to question things that we know are true. It's almost as if a, a cloud comes over our soul and can get us so turned around that we literally cannot see where we're going. And it is in those moments that we most needfully are reminded of the compassion and the mercy of God. And part of me wonders if that's not part of the reason why James inserts this here. Because they would have been so tempted to believe or think that God had forgotten them, that he surely wasn't compassionate toward them, that he was not merciful toward them. And so he says, listen, in the midst of your struggle, remember those who have struggled before. God brought them through. God has not forgotten you. He's going to take care of you too. He is indeed compassionate and merciful. So the question here becomes something like this. Is it easy for us to remember the compassion and the mercy of God in the midst of our own struggle and suffering? And second, what can we do to bolster our memory of that compassion and mercy? And here's where I would, I would, I would go exactly where James goes here. Read those prophets. Look what God did for them. Read Job, look what God did for him, even restored more than he had by the end of the book. And finally, I would say, we've got to learn how to apply the gospel. And we talk about this kind of semi-regularly here, but I want to just kind of refresh it for us to make sure we understand this. When I talk about applying the gospel, I'm not saying anything about we get saved again or anything nonsensical like that. But I'm talking about making those gospel truths immediately come to bear on the particular situations that we face. And so in this instance, sometimes when we get to the bottom of the well of suffering, we can't see anything around us. It's a dark pit. But there's something about the truths of Calvary that you can still see them from the bottom of your well. That no matter where you look, when you lift your eyes, you can still see the cross of the Lord Jesus. And if he really wants us to remember the compassion and the mercy of God, where better can we see all of that come together than at the cross? Because very simply... If God can meet our ultimate spiritual need, that if He can pay for our sin and set us on a course toward heaven, then how can He not take care of our temporal need in the midst of that death, tragedy, loss, so on and so forth? The gospel doctrine 
applied to those situations reminds us of what is ultimate. It reminds us of what is ultimately true about us, and it drives home the compassion and the mercy of God in a unique way. And that's what we really need in our greatest moments of affliction. That's what we really need in the greatest moments of struggle. We need to be reminded that God is with us, that God is for us in Christ, and that He will not let us go. So apply the gospel in the midst of our suffering. Now, let's look at verse 12. And i got to be honest, this verse in the midst of all the others is a little bit of a head-scratcher. Let me read it, and you'll see why. He says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And just to shoot you straight, I don't know how this connects exactly with what he just said. And I'm not alone in that. Most uh, All the commentators I consulted with, they didn't know why either. My guess would be something like this, that in the same way that in the midst of all this suffering, that they're chirping and judging one another, they've also somehow picked up this bad habit of uh, this, this mouth sin, so to speak, of swearing falsely. And when we think about this, we're not talking about using four-letter words here. we got other verses that say we need to eschew that kind of behavior. But what he's talking about here would be something like you're telling something to your friend, uh, they give you a little bit of a side eye about it because it's kind of shady, and you're like, no, 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 I'm telling you, I swear this is the truth. And what James is saying is, listen, as Christians, we don't need to communicate like that because, fourth and final principle here, followers of Jesus should be men and women of their word. That's what he's getting at there when he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That, that you need to be a person of integrity who speaks with integrity, and you should not be the kind of person who has to tag on these extra weird statements like I swear to try to get people to believe you. They should believe you because you are living a believable life. And so, again, I'm not exactly sure how that fits into this. Maybe it's a byproduct of the suffering. Maybe it isn't. But in either case, everyone agrees that the point is the same. And, of course, this is right in line with what Jesus said (coughs) over in the Gospels as well. And James is always happy to build upon the words of Christ. So, speaking of Christ, (coughs) let's wrap up today by talking about how this passage points us to Jesus. And to be honest, this one is pretty simple because Jesus is all over the place within this passage. Let's go back and think about the beginning. When he is talking about them standing firm and being patient, when is that to happen? Until the coming of the Lord. And then you get into verse 8 on the second half, and he talks about the coming of the Lord is at hand. So again, Jesus' return is to be a great motive for us in the midst of our difficulty. You move into the next section of the text, you see that that God is the judge here, and we don't want to be judged, uh, and and we need to, to, to speak accordingly. But then when you also think about the prophets, all of them in their own unique way point us to Jesus, the ultimate prophet. Job points us to Jesus as well in his own way. 
But I think <coughs> holistically here, on top of all that, the way that this really gets us to Christ is through this concept of suffering. Because you cannot talk about suffering and not think about Jesus. You can't talk about unjust suffering, which is what they were enduring here, and not think about Jesus. Because who is the ultimate example of unjust suffering? It's the Lord Jesus. He never had a wrong thought. He never did a wrong deed. And yet, in the midst of all that, he was still crucified and killed for our behalf. And so when we think about this, the suffering of Jesus helps us in our suffering. The suffering of Jesus helps us in our suffering. It helps us because it provides an example of how we should go through it. Now, of course, we're going to be imperfect in that. But it also helps us and it provides a payment for our imperfection in the midst of that. But then beyond that, so you have example, you have payment for our sin, you also have empowerment so that we might suffer well in the midst of our own trials. And that's where we get back to talking about the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. James does not come to these people this morning. He does not come to us this morning and go, hey, here's some really hard things. Good luck. This comes implicit with the understanding that we can only do this through the power of Christ at work within us. So part of the way I want to end our time together is in a reminder of all these very challenging things that he said, but also in an encouragement that you are not alone to go, do and, to, to go and do these things. That the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work within you to give life to your mortal bodies. That He is empowering you to be patient in the midst of your suffering, to remember that Jesus is coming back and he's going to fix everything that's broken, to, to not be chirping and judging other people, to, to, to read the prophets, to think about Job, and, and to stop being a person that, that can't be trusted. The Holy Spirit is at work within us even now to help us live into what we're talking about. And so in the midst of a heavy text, there should be a great relief. In the midst of, ooh, this is convicting, there should also, should also be great consolation that Jesus is with us even now to form and shape us more into his image and to lead us on the path that he has for us. So with that good news on our minds, let me pray for us, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.